Hey everyone, it's Jess. I wanted to apologize for the quality of my audio on this episode and also the next episode, unfortunately. I have a new computer and a new microphone and I didn't configure things before we started recording. Uh, It won't be like this next time, but you will still enjoy these episodes as always. They always are amazing. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, as always. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig Campbell. I am both halves of Nerdburger Games. I'm also all the quarters and the eighths of it. That is to say, I'm I'm that guy. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we have with us here a guest, as always, Um He's back. You love him. You've missed him because we didn't have him for a while. Sharung, hello. Woot woot. Lovely to be back. This is my what third appearance on your on your podcast, right? Third, fourth. Third, fourth. I'd I have forget. to go look. It's been a while, so I'm excited <laughs> to be invited again. Tell us a little bit about yourself or our audience in this case. Yeah, so uh, I'm Sharon Biswas. I, I'm a uh, independent game designer and a writer and an interactive artist. Um, in New York City. Uh, I am currently uh, uh, on the faculty at Fordham University and NYU's Game Center. Um, and I'm working on a number of cool projects right now, which I'm very excited about. Um, but today I am going to speak about other things with our lovely hosts here. So, yeah. Yeah, today you said that you chose a topic that's a little bit out of your, not necessarily out of your wheelhouse, but a little different than what you would normally go for so yeah I I haven't done a lot I mean I've done work obviously with this kind of thing but I haven't done like let me make a combat system from scratch for a game right I've never like done that I tend to work with existing things on that or you know modifying things um so I'm like yeah a lot of the you know a lot of the work I've put out um, is either work for other games or small storytelling games with weird things going on. So I was like, let me change up the way I think, especially because I have a giant new RPG commission coming up. Um, I'm like, yeah, it'll be good to to um, think of things from different angles. So uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to not be the absolute expert on this topic and still speak about it with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, Craig, uh, why don't you get into our GMing topic a little bit here um because I am also slightly out of my my realm I although I have played some combat-esque games before and I recently designed a game that had combat in it not really my cup of tea (laughs) (laughs) is Um, it yours (laughs) well it's I've played plenty of of combat oriented games obviously you know a fair fair bit of D&D in there then then I've done you know there's been Shadowrun and um, I played some different mech games, uh, like older mech games where it was really complex kind of stuff. You were keeping track of everything about the mech. Um, but the the topic for the GMing here is uh, keeping combat moving. And um, first there's, uh, you know, as always, kind of some caveats up front. First of all, if your group loves a long drawn out, like paced combat and you like everybody's playing with a lot of options and they need time to make those decisions and you're just having fun at the table that's cool but for those people those groups who want to kind of make sure that they don't get bogged down 
in combat. Um, you know, there are game systems where combat can get slow, slow and sloggy. Um, and, the, uh, you know, if, if you're playing one of those, or even if you're playing a game that, you know, combat moves relatively quickly, like maybe you want it to be even quicker because you want to, and, and maybe it's not always just like, you want it that way all the time, but like sometimes in a game session, you might be getting to like, okay, we're about an hour to go. We've got to do, we're going to, you know, as a GM, you're thinking, well, we've got this kind of set up. We're going to do some role play and exploration and whatnot. And everybody's, you know, some people in the group have a hard out on, you know, at this time, but we want to try to get something in with a, with a, with a combat that's important to set, you know, set up a cliffhanger or something like that. So you want to make sure that that one runs really tight so that people can get out um, get out the door on time for whatever they've got going on in their lives. So we're going to talk a little bit about things you can do as the GM to keep combat moving when you need to. Yeah, um, I think, uh, so I actually have DM'd a lot of combat for a lot of different st systems and styles of systems. So this I actually do know a bit more than the like designing uh, combat part of it. Um, but I think I think Craig, you brought up a really good point is like, what is, what do you want from the group? But more than that, sometimes I, I like to think about this as what is this game about, right? If it is a game that is focused on combat versus not focused on combat, right? And if it's a game that's focused on combat, I think a more in, more important question, honestly, is not, it isn't about combat being slow, it's about combat being engaging. Because if the combat is slow, but everyone's like super engaged, then you're not going to feel that drag, right? And I think Craig's second question of like, or second point of like, oh, but if the time's running out, I think that becomes an issue of more encounter design. Um, so um, I remember having a discussion with Sean, um, what's Sean's last name? He used to work for um, Dungeons and Dragons when he used to do Adventures League. Now he does, um, he does, he works for one of the independent um, companies. Uh, Merwin. Sean. Erwin, yes. Uh, thank you. I know a lot. I literally know a lot of Sean's. I used to date <laughs> Sean. It's a lot of Sean's in my head, right? I also may be flirting with a Sean, but we won't get into that. Um, so, um, so Sean Merwin, um, I remember was once telling me, because, you know, he was hiring me for some work, and he was like, uh, why is this combat encounter here? And what new thing is it offering? I think too often when we do adventure design, we're like, oh, we need a fight here here's a fight and i'm like mm. i think that kind of philosophy really only works if you're starting a new system or if you're doing a one shot or if your players um have not rpg'd in this style before so you want to like oh look there's a thing called combat apart from that if you're playing with like veteran people or you're playing a campaign where the first shine of like oh we've done some fights has worn off you really want to think about why is this combat here is it important what is it achieving is it bringing something interesting and, and new. So I think encounter design um, is the is the first step of, uh, of, of, of uh, keeping time and like, do we need a combat here? No, we don't, you know, cross it off. Um, so I think the strategies that I was thinking about when I was prepping, how do we prevent combat from becoming boring and, 
and thus feel tedious. Because I think the feel of the speed of combat is literally more important than the speed of the combat, right? We have games are this experiential medium where the actions you take are adding to this um, aesthetic quality you are getting from the game. Sorry, my my professor of game design hat is no. This is so emerging. interesting. Um, yeah. um, so, so the perception of the of the pace of the combat is more important than the actual pace of the combat. Unless, again, we get to Craig's caveat of, oh no, there's half an hour left, what are we doing? But again, that's a failure of encounter and perhaps system design, right? And hopefully we'll get into the system design question at the end, the second half of this uh, of this talk, right? How are we designing the systems to be um, better uh, in combat and things like that? So. Um, one thing that I think is, is is useful to bring into this conversation is um, Nordic LARPing, right? Um, because many styles of Nordic LARPing have moments where a small subset of the players are doing an entire scene and the rest of the players are sitting on the side watching the scene, right? Mm. Um, and the philosophy there isn't Ugh, I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting here getting bored. The philosophy is, ooh, what are my fellow players doing? This is interesting. And both in terms of a viewing thing, it's interesting for me to watch and it is pleasurable to watch. And also, could this inform my play, right? And I think that philosophy is one we want to bring into this comment. We shouldn't be like, ugh, your turn's taking so long. What what am I doing? I'm just waiting for my turn. That's a bad philosophy for collaborative play. Uh, it should be about what are other people doing. It's it's exciting, but of course there are strategies to make this happen, right? Because obviously you will maybe possibly almost inevitably those are very different meanings, but almost inevitably you'll get to the stage where oh my god that person's turn is taking so long. Ugh, ugh. So I thought. I was thinking of like um, strategies to to mitigate that like downtime, right? That the downtime becomes more pleasurable um, for everyone. Um, yeah. Also, I was thinking, sorry, Jess. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. Oh, awesome. So I don't <laughs> want to interrupt people. Um, and also sometimes in, in lots of these games, we're going to use D&D as an example because D&D is one that many people are familiar with. Um, some people's turns are just longer than other people's turns because of the nature of the characters they have. And so how can you like make those short turns interesting are, are other things um, I was thinking of. And then finally, um, the how when battles can be very fun, but after a while you're like, okay, this battle is dragging on. How do we mitigate that and keep the like pace and tension high? So those are the three um, things uh, I was thinking of um, when when thinking about this topic, um, and I have thoughts about each. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I the part about engagement really rang true to me. Like that, it is not necessarily about the length of the combat, but it is about how well your players are engaged, and I think that thread ties through all of your points. That if the players are not engaged, it's not going to be fun. I think that's probably the number one role for being a GM in the first place. I do think that the the effort it takes to be engaging and to be engaged um, is it becomes steeper the longer the more drawn out a combat goes. Not necessarily length of time, but even like the amount of turns you're getting, 
in this combat, after a while, no matter how well you are engaged, like you could be watching, for example, the most interesting movie in the world. And if this most interesting movie in the world is nine hours long, there's going to be a time where you're going to get tired. There's going to be a time where you're going to get bored. Things are going to start repeating themselves. I would argue that at some level that becomes a system design issue, right? Yeah. Then you can ask, why did you make this movie nine hours long? Why exactly. That, right? Or why do we have 25 pages in this book talking about your shoes, right? Um, same thing. So at some level, you might want to be like, is this system the optimal one for the combat experience my players and I want? But hopefully today we'll discuss Got some strategies to make that better because again we know this right a game is not just the system design is also the dynamics of the players at the table and all it, games are complicated messes which is why they're hard to make right um which my first year students are always like whoa this was harder than i imagined and i'm like aha you have learned something about game line um so um one of the things i do and i'm this is going to sound snooty, but I've now been playing and running games for a while, and I, um, I'm i allowed to have opinions. I don't always voice them to the DMs that I think are bad. I, I just quietly leave the table after the session and be like, sorry, I'm really busy with my professor life. I don't think I'll be returning to this game. Um, but one thing I, I do, and I'm surprised that other people don't do, is ask players to bring color into their terms with leading questions, right? And I'm specifying with leading questions because not all players, it is, it, is, it, is, it is mentally taxing to create description. Um, that is why some games yeah. um, are just more mentally taxing to play than others, even if they're brilliant games, right? But having leading questions is very helpful. So I can give an example of that, but Jess, you were going to say something. Oh, no. I Again, when I say, yeah, I was just agreeing with you. I mean, this just reminds me a lot of being a teacher. In general, right, creating right. engaging I mean, yeah, lessons. Like, I'm a professor and I do this kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, for example, I was at a, at a table once. Um, uh, this guy I was dating was a DM, in fact. Um, and um, they, uh, some of his players hadn't played a lot. And so, you know, he'd ask, okay, uh, we were playing 5e. We were playing a homebrew campaign of 5e. And he'd be like, okay, so what are you doing? And the player would be like, okay, I cast, like, um, uh, Eldritch Blast, the one of them will think of Warlock, and he'd like, I'll cast Eldritch Blast, and then we'd move on, and I'm like, well, that's really boring. Um, the first session we played, the DM asked, I cast Eldritch Blast, and then he's like, uh, sorry, the DM asked, what'd you do? The player said, I cast Eldritch Blast, and then I asked, ooh, what does that look like? And the player kind of, like, paused, and I could tell that he had never been asked what his Eldritch Blast looked like. And I was a bit surprised because I'm like, if I want to be engaged in this combat, I want this kind of um, cinematic feel. I want to see what's going on in this fight. Uh, and so I asked him, what does the Eldritch Blast look like? And he was like, oh, and then he did the description. And everyone at the table was like, ooh, right? Because he had the description. Regardless of his power, his like lyrical efficacy no, not that's a bad word his lyrical like prowess like he wasn't like the, the my fingertips glowed whatever and blah blah blah, blah. he's just it, he just gave some color like ooh, i opened my hand and a green laser shoots out of it right even having a little bit of that i think makes the combat more engaging for everyone uh, and so i would say a simple trick and making the combat more engaging is ask people a question about their thing now of course 
the 15th time they do Eldritch Blast, you're like, okay, they've done Eldritch Blast 15 times. You're not going to say, ask the same question again and again. What does it look like? What does it look like? So, you you know, you should try and think about, like, other, other like, leading questions to ask. Um, uh, and this this is where it gets challenging. Um, this is where you have to like come in uh, as a as a creative DM and be like, okay, well, what what else can I ask about this? You can you can be like you can ask, but like, oh, um, this monster. It doesn't have to be about the action they're taking, right? You can be like, oh, you've never seen this monster before, and you're about to hit it. Like, how? What do? You, what what's going through your head? Things like that, right? Um, but of course, you also have to balance this, right? So we're talking about this idea of pacing. You don't want to make it that every single action you do, you're asking an involved question about, like, tell me how your childhood affected this action that you're about to do right now, right? And I think that is the art of being a DM versus the, like, science of being a DM, where you have to, like, get a feel for the rhythm at your table and be like, okay, now is a good time to ask a question, or maybe this player hasn't spoken a lot, so I'm going to in, try and engage them more and ask them a more um, in-depth question about this. Um, because I think... Uh, you know, you know how there's we talk about this idea of how are like there's this idea of like how do sex scenes and films further the plot, right? Which is a question that get asked a lot. I think we focus on like sex scenes, but we can folk we can do that on any kind of verb heavy moment, right? Combat being one of them. How is this combat furthering the plot or furthering the characters or furthering the vibe of the world? And those are three things you look for in, when you're writing a scene or when you're making a scene, right? Is it further the plot, the vibe, or the characters, right? And so even if the com, you're not like, okay, describe to me exactly how you're pulling your bowstring, like whatever, you can use that opportunity to ask questions about like, about like the vibe of the world or the vibe of the characters like so you're you've been shooting arrows for a long time and now you're fighting a ghost um what does it feel like like you know you're shooting this ghost it's not having an effect what's going through your head right so i think these kinds of questions are one thing something i especially do if the player has a turn that would normally be fairly dull. So I, I became, I don't know, mini viral on four different social media platforms, putting this D&D combat tip that uh, that I, I tweeted about once, which is when you're doing death saving throws, right? When someone is dying and you're doing a death saving throw, that's a normally a really boring turn because all you're doing is death saving throw or not, and then you move on from your turn. So when I do death saving throws, um, I ask someone, oh, you're kind of dying. Um, and your life is flashing in front of your eyes, tell me one life moment that flashed in front of your eyes as you make the saving throw. And people are like, oh, and they say something, right? There, what became a boring turn for them, which would mean that they're getting, they find combat tedious because they're not doing anything significant. They're only watching other people um, becomes a character moment for them and make it short, right? Don't tell them not to like, don't give me like a, a diatribe or don't give me like war and peace. Just a quick moment that flashes in front of your eyes as you make death saving throw. This makes combat feel less tedious because even though you're not taking a major action on your turn, you're still contributing fairly majorly to the shared, you know, narrative tapestry that your group is is uh, weaving together, right? Um, okay, that's one thing. Um, secondly, um, the, we talk about this encounter design, right? Like, is this encounter important? 
but you can make the encounter feel more important within the combat itself, right? So for example, things can enter that change the stakes of the combat. Um, I have a, for when I, when people sometimes ask me, Sharon, we don't play role-playing game, we never played one before, run one for us. I tend to fall back on Monster of the Week, right? Because Monster of the Week is very accessible for a lot of people. Just tell them it feels, it's like Buffy. You're playing Buffy. And they're like, oh, we understand that, right? And the Powered by the Apocalypse rule set is fairly low, um, easy to um, grok, right? Um, and whenever we have a comment at the end, regardless of the scenario, I always use this trick, which is one of the NPCs that the players have met in that one shot that they like or find funny or something, I try and throw them into this combat in some way, right? So for example, an ex a, a, a scenario that I recycle a lot for friends is because I, I went to Dartmouth so I uh, as an undergrad. So I set a like monster mystery in a small New England college. It's a great setting. People are always like, ooh, intriguing, right? And in the end, there's some big bad, but in the middle, I always introduce a like, um, groundskeep there's like kooky groundskeeper character who believes in all the urban legends but is very lovable because he wants to save all the students and in the end whatever their big bad fight is it's a necromancer it's a shadow demon it's a whatever the, the scenario that I made is I always have the groundskeeper rush in at the end because he's somehow heard what's happening or he mm -hmm. hears the commotion or he solved the clues and he's like oh no students are in danger and I'm going to rush in and he's this like elderly man who is clumsy and whatever. And the monster inevitably is like, who is this thing? I will now go after them, right? So this creates new stakes for the player, right? They're not just bash the monster. They're like, oh, we need to save this character that we like. So this then changes the feel of combat. It becomes less tedious. It becomes a, a different reason for being in this fight. Um, similarly, you can introduce a temptation. This is kind of a temptation, except that it saves someone. Because temptation, like, oh, um, I don't know, there's some treasure that's been uncovered. Um, so you can like go after it, um, letting the fight go on with your allies, um, knowing that if you don't go after it, that temptation won't be there forever, right? Like the walls are crumbling all around you, or the pillar's gonna land on this, I don't know, golden cup and destroy it so you won't be able to get it anymore, right? So again, that changes the stakes of the combat to make it a bit less tedious. And also, if you're like, oh, uh, a single player, all they've been doing the, the whole time is um, is um, hitting with their sword, hitting with their sword, I hit them with their sword, this creates new things for them to do. On a related note, you can, this is again, at the level of the encounter design, you can pepper your encounter with like, props and manipulables, right? So there's a boiling cauldron of oil is a classic, or brazier of burning coals are classic ones, right? But if there are props around that that the player can use, and you can signal, you can telegraph to the player that players can use them by making your enemies use them, right? So if they're, if they're, if they're the one big bad and a couple of mooks, and the mooks start like taking the braziers and knocking them over to throw burning coals at the players, the players can then know, oh, I can do the same thing, right? So creating objects and manipulable manipulables around for the player to use um, makes uh, combat more interesting. Uh, again, you can also um, make um, 
end piece like um uh, enemies especially mook enemies will die quickly die in interesting ways that like foreshadow other parts of the plot or are just like fun and wild right so cultists you kill a cultist he he whispers like you may have killed me, but the great Yam Khamama will get you. And the player's like, wait, who the hell is Yam Khamama? We haven't heard this name before. <laughs> it's Ooh. just, uh, it's not a real thing. He's just, he's just bluffing. I would make some bullshit up when I was dying too. It's a mystery, right? And that, that would, of course, be a funny twist. No, actually, the cultists didn't worship anyone. They, they were completely wrong, right? But yeah, so the foreshadowing that way or, or just... You, you know, you stab him and like, oh, he's a cultist. Yeah, he died. But you can, you as a DM can be like, the point of your blade like turns black and like tendrils consume him as he is consumed by the spirit of the elder god that he wanted to serve, right? So things like that um, keep uh, the combat going. And then finally, um, in, the, in that level, there is something to be said of if you are noticing that your players are getting fatigued with the combat, right? Remember... The point of combat in any RPG game is to inject in excitement and uncertainty. In that's what you want to achieve in your players, right? If your players are like, okay, this combat's dragging, my philosophy is it is more important to end the combat early than to obey the math, right? If your enemy has a hundred hit points left. And, but you know that your players are like probably gonna win this fight because whatever, and they're getting really bored because this fight is tedious. Chop your enemy's hit points in half, or some or or something happens and a pillar falls on the enemy and hurts them. You or can also, enemy... yeah, keep going. Yeah, down. you can also let them narrate. Like, how does this wrap up? You're going to beat him. How how does it happen? Let them right, just exactly. finish narrating. I think too often we are like, no, 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 we are slaves to these numbers when what's more important is, have we got what we want out of this fight? Um, we got excitement, we got danger, we got risk. Uh, if we didn't, then inject that. Right? If we're like, oh, this fight not been risky enough. Oh, maybe the wall starts collapsing. Oh no, risk. Now the players are, have to deal with this as well. If, we've, if we haven't got excitement, risk, whatever, inject that. And once you've got that, if the fight's getting tedious, End the fight early, right? Enemies can flee. Um, like Jess said, you can narrate how how you mop up. Especially this view that killed the big bad and they're like minions are around. Yeah, you don't need to waste time. Okay, how do we deal with the minions? To ask the players, great, you killed the boss. The minions are probably easy to deal with now. Narrate how that happens, right? I think those kind of strategies um, are very good. And of course, there are some mechanical ways that some games do this. So I really love, and I steal this mechanic and use it in many other D20 games. 13th Age has this escalation die mechanic, right? Where there's a die on the table. First round, it says a one, which means you add a plus one to all your attack bonuses. Second round, you move up the die to a two. So everyone automatically adds a plus two to all their die bonuses. Third round, three. So the game has mechanically added systems to be like, as battle progresses, the players are more likely to hit. This prevents the battle from feeling like slow and tedious. Like, oh, I just missed three times in a row. Which, I mean, could be funny and interesting, but after a while, you're like, oh my God, bit over that, right? And so there's mechanics to like, um, increase the momentum of the fight. And that mechanic, 
I have stolen and used in 5e D&D a lot because it's, I think it's very portable, great mechanic. You can use it in many systems of games even because many games use this idea of roll a die and you want a high number on the die, right? So use a D6 uh, for that. So I think um, those are some uh, strategies um, to like make this like the fight um, become more engaging for the players and feel less like like a slog that I've thought of. There, There is a lot in there. Um, yeah, I think- I, the, I can put my notes there. away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other than some like mechanical, like, you know, cheat sheets, abbreviate your notes, you know, you can pre-roll damage. There's nothing wrong with that. Like just right. as the GM, like you're, if you're, you're going to be dealing with like multiple foes, like pre use averages, that's okay. Or, or averages for the mooks, you know, so that you don't have to sit there like, okay, now it's time for six mooks to attack. I got to roll attack and damage and attack and damage and attack and damage. You can get your turnover by going attack, boom, take three, attack, boom, take three, you know, and, you know, describe it more than that, but you don't have to sit there and roll and add up and check penalties and all this sort of thing. And you can pre-roll too. I've done that to great effect. That's actually kind of fun as a GM because you get to the point where like, here's a good damage roll that's coming up and boy, oh boy, do I want to hit? Cause I want to make the fighter actually have to work for this. You know, I'm going to, so I'm going like, to, I'm going to hope that this manages to pull it off. And so when it does, it's kind of like a little oops, serotonin for me. I just nailed the fighter. They're going to have a, a tougher time. It's going to be, make it more interesting for the player. And if I miss, I'm like, Oh, okay, finish him off. Like, you know, that, that was my best, you know, best I, attack I because I, I, because I pre-rolled some stuff and the next few attacks are, are not going to prop, you know, you know, and that might play into, like you said, Sharung of like, well, now I, like, I know I'm probably not going to deal any damage or, you know, I'm not going to, you know, the, the, the characters are going to win at this point. Like there's a good chance that the characters are going to win. So we can kind of wrap it up. Yeah, um, and there's this thing about that there are all these like strategies that people have, right? Which are, you know, talked about a lot. Like make the players roll damage and to hit at the same time. And if they miss, the damage doesn't count. But if they hit, they haven't wasted time rolling another die. Plus it's more fun rolling lots of die at once, all that kind of thing. Um, and that, 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 this is pre-roll ID is very interesting, right? Because I can imagine a combat encounter where I, as a DM, have sat and rolled. Okay, so first off, it is fun to roll dice, right? Um, Greg Kostikian talks about in his book, Uncertainty in Games, talks about this idea of well, the heart of gameplay is some sort of uncertainty. And random uncertainty of dice is very exciting, right? So you, so at one level, you don't want to make the DM like completely like, oh, I'm not going to roll any dice at all ever. If it's a game there, the DM rolls dice. I'm also game the DM don't roll any dice, right? Um, because that robs away some of this uncertainty fun. However, I can imagine where I, as a DM, I'm like, okay, I'm going to roll 20 D20s. I'm going to have them on my sheet. And on my turn, rather than waste time, roll a D20, I will pick one of the D20 rolls I did and then cross it off. Which then for the DM, the fun comes in to be like, what number will I pick now? Not Do from right. And then Do I... you, maps, you can't <laughs> use all of them. And sometimes you'll have to pick a crappy number. Um, this, I think, works if your play style is, like, slightly adversarial, where the DM is trying to win more, and the players are trying to win more, which, obviously, elements of that come in all these combats, but that becomes the DM can optimize, like, I'm going to use my high rolls for the attack and low rolls for the saving throw, or the other way around. I think that can be a interesting new way of playing um these kinds of um combats and then of course there are all these other tricks that like people have that you can like hear about read about 
almost ad nauseum, right? Every D&D blog and D20 game blog has something like this, like, oh, make uh, for initiative, write your players' names on little, like, tents and put them in order. Um, and, like, exactly, you like the reason 5e monsters both have a die value and an average value for each attack damage is so you can choose. Do I want to go faster and use the average value, which I always do for minor monsters? Uh, or do I want to have the excitement of rolling a extra die and having an extra level of uncertainty? So those kinds of um, um, things. I think that's also a... Um, as the combat goes further, you can even be like, okay, I, I was rolling dice for them, now I'm going to just use averages for them, right? You can change that on the fly. I think the, a lot of those strategies are very effective. Well, what can we do as game designers then with our game design topic? Our game design topic of today is something called action economy. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> economics in in my ttrpg in my tabletop game like i couldn't think of a good way to transition that like from i just really like the phrase action economy i've used it several times do i know exactly what it means no but but <laughs> i do like talking about how can we kind of like translate some of these gming advice tips and things um along those lines into our design as as we start writing our own games or modifying games that we like to play anyway. Yeah, I'm curious about what two of you have to say. So, um, so first off, I think you, I, I love that you brought about this idea of um, action economies because it, we're talking about games and economic systems. And I do a whole, um, there's a great talk at Indicade by Paolo Pedicini called um, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Games. No, the game, it's, it's, it's you know, the famous Max Weber book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. He applies that to games and talks about how in the current way we, we make games, games are this crystallization of the rationalist philosophy and this drive towards capitalism, right? Which is very funny. We're talking about this action. We think of a combat game, but yes, economics comes in because um, Pedicini talks about this idea of many of our games are about optimizing and manipulating resources, right? Um, that's an aside, but the, the point is that these combats become resource management exercises and puzzles, right? Where your resource becomes the actions you have, um, which is very exciting, right? It's exciting to like manage these. That's, that's why it becomes economy, right? Should I spend this resource now? Should I wait for it later? Should I use this action now? In like fancy and magic systems, oh, I only have one cast of the spell. Should I do it now or should I do it later, right? Should I move now? Should I heal? You know, it's an exciting puzzle. Action becomes a puzzle, right? Um, and of course, what the way you design your action economy for your game um, depends on the kind of, as usual, like, like I think I've said this in every single talk that I've been on, every single interview I've been on, not interview, discussion I've been on with you guys, it depends on the feel that you want to give to the players, right? Do you want a really high immersion game where you're counting the number of bullets and the force with which you're pulling the arrow uh, and the, the, oh, there's fog today, so the penalty on arrow shooting is this? Or do you want a more like, a less immersive, realistic experience, right? Remembering that high immersion doesn't always mean better game, right? Frank Lance, a former head of the NYU Game Center, has a lovely talk at, I think it was at GDC, where he talks about the immersive fallacy, where we have this 
fallacy that high immersion means better game. And the great example he gives is that imagine you're playing a fantasy computer game, but every hour of the game, you had to go into the woods and poop, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably not a fun game. Oh, you have to poop and you have to find good sized leaves to, you know, clean up with and stuff. That's boring, right? I can't believe so you that you're talking crap about my crap simulator game. Right. That... You guys know that my undergrad thesis was literally about human poop, right? Anyway, um, <laughs> um, I have, everyone jokes about my feces thesis, but anyway. Um, but so this idea of high immersion, now, he's not saying high immersion is necessarily bad. He is saying high immersion is not necessarily good, right? Um, so keep that in mind when you're designing an action economy. Like, is it important to be like, you must take an action to open your bag and another action to find the bullets, another action to load the bullets, right? Like, is that important to do? Does that make the combat feel tedious, what we were deciding before, right? So that's something um, uh, that you want to do. And then once you've decided that, um, I think a good place to start is look at like different um, models that other um, games have used, right? Um, oh, and, and this one, one example I wanted to give now that also is relevant to our DMing is, so remember we talked about this idea of in Nordic LARP watching other players do stuff the philosophy is that this is a fun thing to do, right? Mm. Um, many games incentivize that in some way. Even D&D incentivize that, right? Um, so these systems you can create. So for example, in D&D, um, there is a system where you as a table, depending on the way the table is running, because these are, and I think the DM guy has multiple ways of doing this, but you can award inspiration for fun things that other people do, right? So the table can decide, oh, that description you did was like super badass. We would like to award that player inspiration, right? So that that is a system at the level of designer. You can add the system to make these comic more interesting. Similarly, in um, in Golden Sky Stories, which is not a combat game. In fact, the combat rule is if you fight, you lose friendship, I think is the main mechanic for combat. It's not a combat game. But when other people do fun things, you give them this currency. I think it's called Dreams. I forget. Um, which is actually mechanically like the more you after you collect a lot of them you can like level up right so it's all about like doing cool things with the players so you can have these systems to encourage people to be interesting in their um in their descriptions um in sorcery by ron edward i always forget his name um there is a dice bonus you get for describing things well now you could argue that this penalizes players who aren't descriptive, and I think that's absolutely true. But the system is, um, I think there's an example in the book, which is like, if the player says, I shoot the, the, the gangster, they only get one die. But if they say, I whip out my gun and aim a bullet at the gangster, that's another, they get two dice. Now, again, that presuppose a lot of things about your player, their facility with language, their ability to think on their feet, blah, blah. But that is, again, an attempt to make this combat more interesting within this um, action economy. Now, uh, we talk about action economy, and I'm just going into action mechanics. Let's go back into the economy part of it, which is how do we think about, uh, about um, this action economy itself, right? And I feel a lot of uh, starting designers are influenced um, or, or pay attention only to the, the games they've played. And for a lot of certain designers, the game they played mainly is D&D, &D, right? But you can break out of that model of, of combat 
and do a lot of different action economies, even in other D20 games, right? So for example, um, in some D20 games, initiative is not a thing, right? Initiative, some people find actually slows down the game. Um, in Shadow of the Demon Lord, for example, um, and maybe in the upcoming Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which I think is the same system, but making changes, I think the way it works is player turn and enemy turn. And player turns, any player can go, and then enemy turn. And then the player turns and the enemy turn, right? Um, so that's one way, right? You don't need to model very, very um, minutely which player is going first or not, right? That You don't need to do that in your action economy. That can get annoying, like, okay, who's going first, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay. Secondly, um, some games do um, more interesting things, right? Again, Shadow of the Demon Lord has the idea of fast actions and slow actions, right? Where more powerful actions are slower, while weaker actions are faster. So all the fast actions happen first, then the enemies go, then the player's slow actions happen, which means taking a slow action is risky because you could get hit before that, right? And that could change your thing, right? And that also uh, helps with the player engagement thing that we had been talking about yeah. earlier. Like people who are waiting for their turn allows you to add a little bit more description, all of that and focusing on the more engaging portions, which are like the cooler, the cooler Kamehameha type moves. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, and, it, and, and if we think of it as an economy, it adds a level of choice, adds a different level of complexity to the economy because now you're like, okay, I really want to do this powerful spell, but it's a slow action. Ooh, that that's dangerous because if I wait to do the slow action, then what if the monster kills my friend, right? Um, so that adds another interesting layer of decision making. Again, this idea of uncertainty that Greg Kosikian talked about in his book, right? So that's another thing. Um, Pathfinder 2 takes a leaf out of like video game action economies, right? Video game action economies. So I'm talking about using video game action economies, but it, I want designers to be careful because, right, the um, power of video games, there are lots, right? Um, Hamlet and the Holodeck. I always talk to my students about Hamlet and the Holodeck. The, the famous book talks about what is the power of video games in, in in what is the power of the computer in game right what does the computer do and one of the things the computer does is ease of uh, computation right video games are very good at calculating things very fast so what is appropriate in a video game isn't always appropriate in a tabletop game because we cannot calculate that fast we cannot search that fast and if we import mechanics directly we're like oh my god too much brain stuff right however you can import and adapt, right? So Pathfinder uses like this like action points system that's popular in many like uh, turn-based RPGs, right? I think a lot of JRPGs use it as well, where like you have a certain number of action points and different actions take different number of points and uh, how many, what actions can we do, right? And Pathfinder Second Edition simplifies that to be basically you have three action points right uh, and you can do things at cost of number of points i think that is another interesting way of doing it where you might spend one turn doing one big thing in which case we might use a strategy that we outlined earlier where you ask the player more details about well, what does that big thing look like um, or you do many small things in which case you might want to ask the player less because they've they've had more of a spotlight right uh, so um, doing that. Uh, another thing, um, the Powered by the Apocalypse systems, right? Um, one of the tenets of the Powered by the Apocalypse system, especially the ones which have enemies in combat, not all of them do, right? Um, is that I feel a lot of GMs who start running PBTA 
try and run it the same way as run D&D. And then they're like, well, this was boring. Well, yes, because you're not running it the way it's designed to be run, right? It's going to be boring. In PBTA games like Masks or Monster of the Week or things like that, remember the enemy has no initiative, right? The enemy does not act on their own turn. The enemy does not have a turn, right? In PBTA games, the enemy takes an action when the player rolls poorly, right? Because in PBTA games, when a player rolls well, they get to do a cool thing. When a player rolls mediocre or bad, there is a consequence. So in PBTA games, in a fight, the consequence that a player gets for rolling poorly is that the enemy does something, right? There is no enemy turn aside from that. This really changes the pace and the feel of a fight, right? Because the player, the, I mean, you can narrate what the enemy does, like you can add color, like obviously, oh, he screams and jumps back. But the major, or, or he, you can even add colorful fighting, like he like slaps you in the face. But the major combat moves that the enemy does falls or happen or occur when the player rolls badly. And that's actually a almost revolutionary concept if you're used to D&D combat with strict like um, combat turns and things, right? And that's something that changes the way the active economy works because you're not waiting for enemies to do things. You're doing things and you are triggering the bad things that the enemy does, right? Which also has the experiential side effect, right? Um, Ian Bellamy has a great article uh, in the Journal of Analog Games where he talks about one of the powers of the human platform, right? Instead of the video, instead of the computer platform or the PlayStation platform, we have the human platform for analog games. One of the powers is these weird side effects that come. So if in a PBTA game, I rolled snake eyes, which then triggers the GM to use an enemy move, I somehow feel responsible for that, even though in the narrative, you your play, your character wasn't responsible, but you as a player are like, oh no, I rolled snake eyes and now the enemy does his devastating attack. So that has this cool experiential side effect of like making the players feel like they cause the enemy to do stuff, which I think is really interesting when thinking about PBTA systems. Just it's more it's more interesting than like failing at a role in like D&D you fail a roll, you don't do your thing. Like there's not really anything to say other than they miss or it doesn't pierce the hide of the creature or whatever. I, I always found that part of combat and like the, the actions that you take in a game like D&D to be a little bit more boring where failure is just failure, whereas a success is whatever you get and there's no gray area in between. It's either mm -hmm. success or fail. Um, it's boring. It's yeah, just boring to I, me. I think that's a great DMing point, right? Um, so John Stavropoulos, right, who invented the X card, he was telling me a story about a long time ago. He had this mission. He's like, I'm going to join as many different D and D groups in the city that I can, as for one shots, to see different DMing styles, right? And one game he was narrating to me. He was like in a combat. And he missed, like he was, he had a sword or whatever, and he missed his roll. And he's like, yeah, I, I swing my sword and it, it, it like gets stuck in the tree and I'm trying to pull the sword out because he's like, I missed, right? And the DM is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would you narrate that? You're not allowed to narrate your misses. Uh, which I think was a, if I may be so bold, pretty shitty way of DMing, right? Um, 
exactly what Jess is saying. Like, if you're in a system where it's not like a fail-forward system where even your misses mean something, you should let the, you should ask the player, "Oh no, you missed. How did that happen?" Right? Because I think that gives the player a feel of agency and again engagement in the fight, not just "I rolled, I missed, okay, move on from me." Right? That again feel makes you feel uninvolved. But if you're like, "Oh, you missed. What happens?" And sometimes. Sometimes you don't have to ask the player. You can tell the player, depending on the style of players you have. When I have players who aren't used to describing that a lot, I will tell them a way they miss. And, I, and it depends on the tone. You can make it that the play, the character did something silly or tripped or was clumsy. Or you can make it like, no, the characters are competent, but the, um, the enemy is just very good, right? If you play Blades in the Dark, um, John Harper's GMing advice is don't make the players feel incompetent. So if they fail, don't say, whoop, you drop the flask of acid on your foot. Oops. Um, say the enemy whips the uh, whips their whip and and like knocks the flask of acid out of the hand. The players are still competent. The enemies are just more competent in this case, right? So different styles, but I love that point that you brought up, Jess. Um, about that, um, about this, what what does failure mean, and and how does that contribute to again this uh, this I don't know colorful painting that you are producing in your minds, right? Um, and then there are other things, right? Where uh, if you play the cipher system, right? Um, I love I love Numenera a lot. Uh, the cipher system has a thing where GMs never roll anything ever. Basically, players do all the rolling. Now, of course, you as a player, might, you as a GM, might not want that. You might not want a game where you never roll. But th that's the style of that game, right? It, it I find it fun, but not everyone finds it fun. Um, there, in combat, players roll for their turns, and then when the monster attacks. Players roll to defend against the attack. The GM doesn't roll, the player rolls to defend. I think that's really interesting. It gets the players um, rolling a lot. The caveat there is that sometimes you just want to make sure that um, you are keeping track of things well, because I found when I run Numenera sometimes, the players all do their turns. And then I'm like, okay, um, Craig, the monster's attacking you. Craig rolled. And then now in my mind, oh, Craig has now gone and done his turn. So moving on to the next player's turn, well, Craig hasn't done his turn. Craig just defended. So now we have to go to the top of the initiative again. So just be careful if you use if you do that kind of strategy where players are rolling for attack and defense, it creates this cognitive load of keeping track a little bit more. Um, so as a designer, how do you solve that? I think that is a weakness in the Cypher system, even though I love the Cypher system. I like playing it and running it a lot. Um, but one thing I, I think it's important for designers is, is, is okay, so, so this idea of, okay, we're talking about economies, right? Economics is fundamentally, or maybe not fundamental, I'm not an economist, but one of the fundamentals of economics is this idea of cho making choices, right? Making intelligent choices based on the options available. And in my opinion, when designing games um, like this, Choice and uncertainty are the two main tenets you want your players to be thinking about, right? This is what makes these games fun. The fact that players have a choice and then the players have uncertainty, right? So in this economic model of what is a player going to do on their combat turn, you might be tempted to give them a lot of choice, right? But this can become overwhelming, right? Where you can think about the idea of like, 
why D like D and D first level players can do very few things. D and D twentieth level, a player, especially certain classes like a druid, can do five million things. Right? I can cast one of my fifty gajillion spells. I can turn into a platypus. I can you know do all kinds of things that I have. Right? So the problem of course that works because if you're playing a twentieth level game, probably the players are very used to this. I can make the choices fast. But if you're not playing that kind of game, which for the most part people don't, you as a designer don't want to overwhelm your player with choice, but you also want to give them interesting choices, right? And then you want to create this level of uncertainty because you don't want every combat to have the same choices all the time. Like that that becomes boring as well, which is why the idea of putting the cold and boiling oil is interesting. So can you design to mitigate that. And I think a really good example is actually a video game, right? So I've been obsessing about Marvel Midnight Suns recently, right? Partially because you can like sit on the roof with Spider-Man and chat about his like life in Queens, or you can- It's a dating sim and it's very spectacular. It's amazing. <laughs> like my favorite, my literally favorite moment is when Ghost Rider was telling me how his, gra his abuela taught him how to make carne asada and you should have a potluck that he'll make carne asada in, right? Amazing. But the combat I think is really well designed because it's a deck builder which means, uh, well, it's not deck builder in that sense of board game deck builder, but it's a deck builder that you build, so it's not really deck builder in that way. That's bad of me to say it. That's wrong. But it's a game where you build decks. So you do all that decision-making before the combat, right? Before the real-time adrenaline of the combat. A good decision they made is decks are very small. You have like eight cards per hero and three heroes. Very small, okay? Now, in combat, you draw your hand of cards, you have a very limited set of decisions. You have four different cards, usually, like four or five, unless you're playing, then you get a lot of cards. But you have like four or five cards on average. So you have choice, but it's limited. Then you have three actions to take. Again, you have choice, but you have this limited resource uh, uh, to, um, to use them. So Mark Brown has a great video of economies and video games and he talked about the idea of limiting he talked about drains right ways to use up your resources and they're important because they add risk and they make people have to make smart decisions right so you have few cards you have a limited way to play them but every round you will draw different cards and different combats you'll have different heroes in fact the game forces you to have different heroes and different combats to uh, in some ways to make your choice different right so here the game, there is a lot of interesting choice, but each round, you only have a small subset of those choices. You don't have 24 cards to use right now. You have five of them, right? And I think Fate of the Norn, the tabletop RPG um, that uses, it's, it's, it's like Viking-ish themed, and it uses a bag of runes, does a thing, like uses that sort of model very well. While you as a character have lots of different things you can do, but on your turn, you will draw a certain number of rune stones, and those are the only actions you can do, right? I think those systems are very smart in variety, but uncertainty and limited choice to make combat feel interesting, dynamic, difficult, right? It models like in a, in a real fight, 
you can't do anything under the sun because of lots of circumstances, including your own physicality. So it kind of models that if you want to look at the ludonarrative assonance, which is a term I sometimes use that I've kind of made up because it's not a real term. It's just the opposite of ludonarrative dissonance, which is a term game scholars make fun of. Uh, so I think I think those, like, I think when de designing these economies, right, I think the fundamental thing is choice and variety and like balancing those, sorry, choice and uncertainty uh, and balancing those uh, to make it an interesting um, experience. Um, That's what I would tell designers in this abstract sort of way. Also talking about this has been really helpful for me because I'm thinking about this more, both the research side and the talking side. It's like actually I'm doing a big uh, project for the National Academy of Sciences soon and like thinking about these things are very useful to me. So thank you again. Craig, we're we're about to wrap up. Do you have any thoughts on the action economy? <laughs> Sharong covered a lot of different ah. games that have a, a wide variety of action economies. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned just from being familiar with those different games. One of the, you know, some of the things that I've run into with um particularly like with some stuff that I'm working on right now, and it's it's something that's come into play in, in other games that I've designed too, is like the minutia of of what happens particularly in action sequences and combats and and uh chases and things like that where like what's going to make the the combat run longer run shorter like uh and 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 what do you want the game to be right like this this could have been uh come up this could have been applied to either of the topics that we had which is you know the abundance of quick and potent healing in a combat makes for a very different kind of combat situation because if the characters have it probably the enemies have it and you can you know like well a fight that would take 20 minutes might suddenly take 40 because everybody's healing like crazy and like so you as a designer you can give thought to do i want that to be a part of my combat um scenario system and the magic system or whatever because it can get it can it can dramatically change like how combats play out and you find yourself just kind of and not, not and it's not good or bad like a longer combat where there's a lot of healing puts players and the gm into the position of thinking about like well i have these other limited use abilities like do i do i front load it and try to get done or like all of a sudden i get to the second half of the combat and i don't have my coolest spell anymore because now it's been extended because everybody you know there's been healing on both sides and so you have to think about like you know what the characters um and the in the monsters and, and the super villains and whoever are able to do and how how quickly and, and easily they can do it and what kind of effect it has on wrapping an action sequence um, same thing goes for like hold spells and grappling and stuff like that. Like how easy is it to get out of that stuff? Like one of the rules I hated the most from old D&D &D was you've been hit with a fear effect. Drop everything and run. <laughs> okay. And then I run for D4 rounds and I rolled a four. And now I, at the end of four, and I get to do nothing for four rounds. And at the end of the four rounds, now I have to run back for four rounds and pick up my crap. And now I get to fight again, eight rounds later. That was the rule for some fear effects that that could happen. That's um, really cool because that's two things that are really cool, right? So first off is this idea of if you are creating mechanics that end player choice, that's often a bad thing, right? It's like in board games when you're like lose a turn. It's I I tend to think that's a bad mechanic. I'm not doing anything. But if healing is really interesting because if we look at the history of D and D, this like how much and how how healing is done has changed drastically between systems, right? You have this whole healing surge mechanic 
but every time you you get um you get healed by a cleric even you have to spend one of your own healing surges right while fifth edition went back to the third edition model of no healing is like the spell thing you have but fifth edition has like long rest you like regain all your like um healing uh what are they called the edition i forget hit, hit dice points. right hit dice, hit dice. Right. yeah um so like i think that's really cool example because even within the, the familiar game of DD, the philosophy of healing has changed so drastically to have very different effects in the systems yeah and i think the designers did it partly to experiment and try different things to try to improve the game in different ways and and different groups of designers had different beliefs on what would improve the game like what DD should be um and in response to like what players kind of have come to expect and the changing of of how games work in general like the idea of somebody getting hit with a fear effect and running away for four turns and then running back for four turns i don't think i've seen that in it you know like that like mm -hmm. A fear effect is usually going to be like, oh, you are shaken. So you suffer penalties because you're mm -hmm. afraid um, where, where you can still act, but you've got a penalty and maybe you can find a way to overcome that penalty. That's a little more engaging for the well, player to be able to do things like, like describe what you do when you're afraid. Right. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's um, what happens when the game is it's not the same game. There has never been a version of D&D &D that is the same game as the game that came before it. It's a brand name that's put on top of it. Much like Iron Man and Thor are two different movies in the franchise. They are just under the banner of Marvel. That's like that's the connection. I've never thought of it that way. That's really, that's really like... Yeah. Uh, why? Yeah. Fourth and, and you, fifth that are not the same. Yeah, you could argue that, yeah, like, you know, Captain America movies have a different feel than Thor movies have a different feel than Iron Man movies have a different feel than Avengers movies. Yeah, or the so like, Hulk. Yeah, or, the, or the Hulk movie. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> are not the same as Windows 95 and Windows 98. They are like Linux and Windows or something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I don't know why I went to 95. That's what my childhood. That's like so a lot of our listeners will not know what Windows 95 are because a lot of our listeners are fairly young. So oh my God. <laughs> I just got this new computer and it came installed with Windows 11. And I'd been not wanting to install it on my old computer. And now I have to live with this. And it is, I am in a bad place. I don't like what's happening on my screen. <laughs> um, but and that's kind of how a lot of people feel about D D uh, to come back. Tabletop point. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have a weird um, feeling about the phrase "action economy" just because of my own um, my own personal beliefs on how games work and also how economy works. Uh, and I think it would be really interesting to an analyze that from um, maybe a Marxist lens and at some point. But we are out of time. We have another recording we got to get to in about fifteen minutes now. But uh, Sharang, it was a pleasure speaking to you. I was I learned a lot. Thanks. I hope I didn't gab too long. I, I might have my professor hat might have fully emerged. I'm like I will now lecture. Sorry about that. <laughs> it was a lot of good stuff. Yeah, we. I like it when my guests talk. Uh, it's <laughs> I I don't like awkward silences because I have to edit them out. <laughs> yeah, I, I had I did all the prep right, so I'm like okay now I, I'm gonna speak. <laughs> well, right, I hope that was. Thank you for having me. No, thank uh, you for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, listeners, for listening to us, Gab. And I hope it was useful for you. Um, yeah. Where can we find your stuff? Oh, uh, yeah. So um, 
I'm on Twitter at Sharang Biswas. Hopefully Twitter will remain. Who knows? I joined Mastodon. I've not used it yet. Um, my uh, itch.io page, which I haven't updated in a bit because I've been making not a lot of independent stuff, not other stuff, is astrolingus.itch.io. Uh, and check out, um, this is a special announcement. I have a um, new novella coming out from um, uh, Neon Hemlock Press. They're going to make an announcement soon, so I won't give any details because they're going to make the announcement. Um, so if you're interested in my work that's fiction and not games, um, check out Neon Hemlock Press. I've, I've, I've done stuff for them before in their anthologies, but I have a novella um, in the works for them. So Woo. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it's my first, <laughs> it's my first book. Like I've done short stories. I've done book chapters and academic and pseudo and near academic works. I've done articles. I've done plays even, but I've never done a book length thing. So I have a novella, which is exciting. You can find me at wannabegames.com. I do not have a novella. However, I I do have a Tumblr and a Twitter and they are both at Joska and a TikTok at Jess is Awful. And I just got my proof for the means of magic, the print version. And after I make some revisions, we'll have a print version of that available. I would love to play your magic school game. Oh, that's not a magic. There is a magic school, but it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's not the best place to be unless you really like role-playing um, student debt and the <laughs> I mean, the education to corporation pipeline. People love Naomi Nomi's the last graduate, right? Which is a magic school where the school is actively trying to murder all the students. So she just wants you to be a slave to the system. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's you can find my stuff at wannabegames.com or drive through or an itch. Wannabe games. Uh, and I do not have a novella. I've written screenplays and not, no one is ever going to read them. But because uh, it's been a very long time and they weren't very good. <laughs> the games are much better. Uh, and I'm uh, Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. You can find the games at drivethroughrpg.com. Um, the nice versions of the hardcovers for Code Warriors, Capers, and Good Strong Hands are all at nerdburgergames.com in the store. Um, and Die Laughing 2, colon, Die Laughing Her, which is a supplement, not a, uh, a second edition of Die Laughing, is coming to Backer Kit crowdfunding on March 7th. Woohoo! And you can try to survive the Octo Shark. Oh, and like, if you search my name on drive through you'll find the things I've contributed to or whatever. I've contributed to a lot of random stuff. So um, just like these guys have made more big things on drive through I'm like, oh, I'll ride for this game. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.